How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is our only full staff podcast of the week. It's Monday on Today in Ohio. I'm Chris Quinn on the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We have Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston together once this week, and then not again till next week. Welcome all. Lots of interesting, very different kinds of stories to talk about on this Monday podcast. Laura, did partisan hatred cause an Ohio man to kill his neighbor? That is a really great, great question. One that I've been asking for ever since I read the first story that Cliff Pinkard put up overnight one night a couple weeks ago that this neighbor killed his neighbor, obviously. And the the wife said he's come over here four times. He's killed him because he's a, he thinks he's a Democrat, which you just want to be like, what? Um, so John Tucker asked a lot of people about this, and he doesn't have a conclusive answer, but he has a lot of really interesting things to say. The story published in, uh, over the weekend on Cleveland.com. So the suspect in this case of the accused killer is 26. His name is Austin Combs. He was living in the small town north of Cincinnati, Butler County, a very conservative area. That's where Miami University is. That's where I went to school. And his next door neighbor is 43-year-old Anthony King. He was just cutting wood in the yard. And uh, Combs told investigators he killed King for two reasons. Both of them were non-political. But that question remains. And John just talked to people. He talked to the sheriff, actually. And he said, basically, he wishes there were not so much hatred. His jail would be a lot less full if people weren't so angry. He's never seen it like this before. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's not definitive. And it it clearly looks like this guy had some Mm -hmm. mental health issues of anger and you never know really what triggers it. It's odd that he said, I had two reasons, but it's not political. But the most disturbing part really was what you just said. The sheriff talking about he's surrounded by rage and he doesn't know what to do about it. Americans have been exhorted into a fit of rage. Yeah, absolutely. And and the idea, I don't think most people are going to kill their neighbor because they're from a different political party. But what the experts are saying is this could push the fringe people off the edge, right? And that's what we're talking about. This guy, um, probably does have some mental health issues. He's been accused of stabbing his father in the past. His father did not die. Um, his During the 911 call, King's son said he's crazy, he's insane, he had some issues keeping jobs. So obviously, there's something not quite right with this guy. But 
The Butler County Democratic Party chairwoman talked to John. She said the incidents put this politically fractured community on further edge and that Democrats around the county have been hesitant in recent years to display yard signs or bumper stickers because it's during the Trump era. It's just become so, you know, so much vitriol. Right. You used to belong to a political party because you, your political leanings went that way. But now it's a big club and it's identity politics. So mm-hmm. if you're not with me, you're against me, you're my enemy, which I think goes in large part to politicians like Jim Jordan and others who exhort people into that kind of fit of passion. But if if really he was killed because he's a Democrat, we are moving into even well, more dangerous you, territory. You look at the Paul Pelosi attack recently, right? That's just these things that you're like, I cannot believe we've come to this. And um, the quote from an expert at American University's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, didn't know that existed, said, your average Fox News grandpa is probably not going to go out and punch someone who thinks he thinks is a Democrat. But when you turn up the temperature of polarization, it's more likely that people on the edge will fall off. And that makes a lot of sense. Right. People with mental health issues to begin with are the ones that are the most easy to manipulate into these fits. It's today in Ohio. Ohio sits between Pennsylvania and Michigan, two states that appear to have a lot in common with us, but Michigan and Pennsylvania went blue in the recent election, while Ohio went red. Lisa, we did some work to try and explain that. It was an insightful story we had over the weekend by Andrew Tobias. It was, and it looks like there are four main areas where we differ from Michigan and Pennsylvania. First, let's set the table a little bit. We know that here in Ohio, the GOP won all of the statewide races. They increased their supermajority in the state legislature. They hold two-thirds of the U.S. House seats. But when you look at Michigan, they won what they call the Democratic trifecta. They got the the governor. They have a, a majority in both their House and Senate. This is the first time since 1984, and they also enshrined abortion rights into the Michigan Constitution. Pennsylvania, there were Democratic wins in the governor and U.S. Senate races. They may have a majority in the state house, but the GOP does control the state Senate there. Um, so let's look at demographics first. Um, there were a lot of Democratic losses in rural and working class areas, which used to be Democratic strongholds, but they picked up Democrats in urban and suburban areas, which was accelerated by the 2016 Trump election, uh, especially along Lake Erie and the Ohio River. We went from blue to red. So basically, even though we gained Democratic, you know, uh, voters in suburban areas, it's still a net loss for Ohio. Also, there's a small town, big town population mix that's largely not changed in 60 years. 49% of Ohio votes came for rural areas or towns of 20,000 people or less. And we don't have a mega city like Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, which is 6.2 million people in population. Uh, also, Detroit Grand Rapids, as you know, is there's like a two, you know, two Democratic strongholds now in, in Michigan. And, you know, in in the Cleveland Akron area, we only have three and a half million people and only 2.1 million in Columbus. So, um, you know, we're just 
more conservative politically as well. University of Akron poli sci professor David Cohen says, you know, Ohio is the mother of presidents, but all those presidents have been Republican. You know, the GOP has, has controlled the Ohio Senate since 1995, the Ohio House since 1995, except for a two-year period in 2006-2008. We've won all statewide, uh, you know, partisan offices. There was also a lack of interest by national Dems in Ohio races, specifically the Tim Ryan race. They didn't think that Ohio, they don't think Ohio is a swing state anymore. So they spent millions of dollars in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to help Democrats there, but they decided not to do Ohio because they didn't think they had enough money to help Ryan is what they said. So I'm going to stop there. There's a lot of other things to talk about, but. Yeah. I I mean, I was curious about this. I, I asked, for the story after the election results. And I thought Andrew just got into it in a great way. The three things that really stood out to me was the college education and the lack of a big city. We have a bunch of cities that, well, Cleveland was a big city, you know, 40 years ago, but it's been vacuumed out. And so you've lost that Detroit, Philadelphia buzz. But I also think it's because, and it story points this out, the Democratic Party is in complete and utter free fall And I think part of the reason of that is because labor has changed Mm -hmm. a good deal and Democrats think they can rely on the tired old ways that they used to win and they can't. And and they really have not come up with strong candidates. I mean, the story pointed out the Republicans have really strong candidates. The Democrats don't. And I think that that all plays together. It's it's good stuff. I just the college education thing was interesting where we lag the national average. We lag the other states and it's not insignificant. Right. Right. So, you know, there is a lower number of people with college degrees in Ohio. It's just under 29 percent. In Michigan, it's 30 percent. In Pennsylvania, it's 32.3 percent. And the national average of people with uh, voters with college degrees is 33 percent. And I also want to talk about unions, too, because obviously, you know, we saw a lot of blue collar workers moving from Democratic to Republican. And uh, the former, uh, excuse me, the former uh, AFL-CIO political director Steve Rosenthal says that they ran a program, it's called In Union, where they uh, targeted 2 million former union members or pro-union voters, but they didn't do it in Ohio. They did it in uh, in the other states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. So it seems like a lot of people are writing off Ohio as any kind of democratic state. Yeah. Check out Andrew's story. It's worth your time. It's on cleveland.com, and this is Today in Ohio. Nursing homes gave quite a large sum of money to candidates in the latest election. Layla, nursing homes used to be a major topic of conversation because they used to control the state house almost as much as First Energy. How do they stand to gain from all of their largesse? Well, the nursing homes are, are dealing with rising labor costs and pandemic-driven increases, supply chain problems and staffing shortages, pretty much like every industry. But add to that the fact that during the peak of COVID, deadly outbreaks in nursing homes really accelerated that trend toward home-based care for older folks rather than living in congregate facilities where viruses like COVID can really just pose a threat to to the elderly. And then add to that the fact that inspections also showed that three dozen facilities in Ohio put residents in jeopardy during the pandemic because of poor standards of care and, and poor infection control measures. 
So nursing homes are struggling, to say the least, and, and they're an industry that's heavily reliant on state and federal dollars. The Medicaid program spends around $7.6 billion a year on Ohio's nursing homes. And last year, state lawmakers provided facilities an additional $300 million in COVID relief funds to address the rising labor costs and all that. Uh, so this year, industry PACs and individual facility operators have contributed more than $1.4 million to state races in Ohio during the 2021-22 campaign cycle. And that money went almost entirely to Republicans who just obviously, like Lisa just pointed out, dominate state government. And Ohio lawmakers are now considering legislation that could send hundreds of millions of dollars in extra funds to to basically bail out nursing homes during this, this difficult time for them. House Republican leaders haven't really shared details about the package that's under consideration, but it would provide more for facilities and adjust for inflation, according to House Speaker Bob Cup. Three trade organizations have also proposed this series of policies that would increase their funding while incentivizing certain quality of care measures, which have been pretty weak until now. And lobbyists say a lot of the quality problems that nursing homes have experienced are because the industry has been underfunded for years. So hopefully those incentives would ensure that the money flowing to nursing homes actually translates to better care, right? But Another challenge here is ensuring that this investment in nursing homes doesn't harm the industries that provide at-home or community-based care. Otherwise, you know, folks won't have those options and it'll, they'll be forced into nursing homes. So it's kind of a delicate balance, but that's, that's, what, that's what's at play here with these PAC investments in politics. Yeah, Jake Zuckerman did a great story on this. Here's the problem, though. It, say you're right. Say say that they're, they're right, that they need this money because of all the challenges that you described. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where they could go in to the legislature and say, hey, guys, here's our current state of things. We really can't take care of the old people. We need some more money. Please give it to us. And then there's hearings and they find that there is a need and they give it to them. But no. This looks like pay to play. Of We're going to donate a gigantic sum of money to you, and then you're going to pay us back, which raises huge skepticism about whether they need the money or whether they're just jackals trying to steal from the public. It, it would be so much cleaner if they hadn't donated the money, because then this would just be a discussion about what's right for Ohio. Completely. Yeah, of course. And, and you know, what is politics if it's not pay to play? I mean, this is... This is just classic, uh, you know, special interest uh, at work here. So it's. And we saw Bill Seitz is active in this, right? That always is a red flag. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, and, And Jake did a great job of kind of breaking down who are the great, you know, the biggest recipients of this money. So good story on Cleveland.com. I mean, there's a long history of, in Ohio of the nursing homes getting their way with the legislature. So everybody's antennas ought to be up for this one. Is this just going to be a big payback for people that funded campaigns? Mm-hmm. It's another great story that you read only in The Plain Dealer and on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. Dick Celeste, fresh off publishing a book that includes revelations about his philandering, was Ohio's last Democratic governor to win re-election. Laura, why does he think it could happen again someday, given all that we've discussed this morning? 
Uh, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure how much stock we should put in a governor from 1982 who copped a sex addiction and had corruption problems. But he says that Democrats just need to build grassroots support in all 88 counties. That's all. That's it. That's all you got to do. Uh, he says that Roe versus the Wade, Wade opens the door for Democrats to organize across the state. He says he believes people are, are going to be concerned about a variety of issues. And he's right if that's something they care about enough, right? It, um, obviously, that is a, a way that Democrats can get attention right now. Um, Celeste says Ohio's still a purple state, winnable by either party. Now, remember, he does not live here. He lives in Colorado. Um, but he says the Republican efforts to politicize the Supreme Court and pursue an extreme agenda in the state legislature show the importance of Democrats providing a strong alternative. I can't argue with that part. No, but they've got to get some brains. They've got to get some people that actually can form legitimate strategies. As we saw from the gubernatorial campaign this year, the Democrats were completely lost. They, they had no strategy. They had no plan. Um, and even when they did, like Tim Ryan, who ran a pretty brilliant campaign, it wasn't enough to get across the finish line. Well, that's the thing. If you can run a practically perfect campaign like Tim Ryan and, and try to appeal to a broad array and really not push the Democratic agenda, he wasn't out there like being super progressive and he's still losing by about the same kind of margin as Trump. Like, I don't really know that any statewide Democrat has a shot right now, unless right. you're Sherrod Brown. Well, and even then we'll see in two years. Mm -hmm. It's today in Ohio. What is the Cleveland Clinic's role in a new national study to give us a greater understanding of Lewy body dementia, which is very different from the ailment that we think about when we say dementia, which is Alzheimer's? Lisa? The Cleveland Clinic is part of a, a collaboration of seven institutions that are looking at dementia with Lewy bodies or Lewy body dementia. And so the Cleveland Clinic's Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health is working to create a national data registry for this. They recently were awarded an additional $10.7 The original grant was 2017. And so this $10.7 will be used the next five years to find the clinical disease markers in blood and spinal fluid so they can test for this disease and catch it in its early stages. So let's talk about what Lewy body dementia is. It's very closely related to Parkinson's disease. Lewy bodies are abnormal collections of protein that develop in the nerve cells that are affected by Parkinson's. Brain cells that affect thinking, memory, and motor control. And these are the symptoms of people with Lewy body dementia. There is currently no test or treatment. The, there are subtle differences, like I said, between uh, uh, Lewy body dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, Lewy body dementia affects about 1.4 million Americans. So if you have Alzheimer's, you're basically forgetful for you get where you are, who you are. But if you have Lewy body dementia, you're more like you can't pay attention. You don't follow directions. You have a short attention span. Alzheimer's patients tend to talk about things that never did happen. But Lewy body dementia people have visual hallucinations. But typically, they're aware that they're hallucinations and they're not real, but they still have them. And they also have very Parkinson-like symptoms, tremors, shuffling walk, a stooped posture. And Lewy bodies are 
report found in postmortem Parkinson's patients. So you can see the relation. But Dr. James Leverens with the Cleveland Clinic, he's the co-principal investigator in this. He said in the first phase, they gathered 9,000 samples and it's in an Indiana repository. And then they said, you know, this second phase will really help them find those blood and spinal fluid markers that would make an early detection test possible. A former colleague of mine from the Orlando Sentinel, Mike Oliver, who went on to our sister site, AL.com, has been writing in, in just quite moving detail for some years now about his descent through Lewy body dementia. Uh, if anybody's curious about what that, what that experience is like, I don't think I've read anything that captures it that well. If you search AL.com and Mike Oliver, you can read it. It is a horrifying uh, damage to the brain. And, you know, like I said, it is a different form of Alzheimer's, so it needs a different treatment and a different test, and hopefully we can get there. Okay, it's Today in Ohio. Earlier this year, as they squandered millions and millions and millions of stimulus dollars, Cuyahoga County government officials announced they would preserve $50 million plus for the incoming county executive. That would be Chris Ronane after the election earlier this month. Then last week, they reneged on the deal. Layla, what's going on? Yeah, the battle over the plans to build a new jail continues with this latest plot twist, which really seems to be straining County Executive-elect Chris Renane's relationship with the county council before he's even taken office. (laughs) So, yeah, as you said, until now, council and executive Armin Budish, who you know, they had granted themselves $86 million of ARPA money to squander as they please. They had initially pledged in March to save this $53.6 million pot for the new executive to to allocate. But this week, they're taking up this resolution tomorrow that proposes to take those millions they had set aside and instead commit them to the Justice Center Capital Projects Fund. That money then would be dedicated solely to fund acquisition for, construction of, and improvements to a county jail and courthouse. Council President Purnell Jones pretty much acknowledged that the change in course is is to force Chris Ronane to get his act together around the jail and move this project forward. Ronane, during his campaign, came out against building the jail on that toxic site. And of course, the idea of Bucking the will of the next county executive gave enough council members cold feet that they voted down the acquisition of that site and agreed to put the whole thing on ice until Ronine takes office. And that really upset the council members and other players who were pushing hard to get this plan moving. So they're really forcing Ronine's hand here. Now, while setting aside that money is a much better use of ARPA money than, say, a dog park or rebuilding a golf course, you know, clubhouse in Parma, it does seem pretty sneaky to go about it this way, doesn't it? Uh, You know, I have a hard time being critical of a move that sets aside $50 million for a much needed jail and justice center complex. It's a kind of a brilliant way to renege on your promise. They they couldn't have been their idea. They're not smart enough. Somebody must have come up with this from outside. But how do you criticize? I mean, with the way they've squandered the $66 million on their little projects, they're not clawing any of that back, by the way, to put it into the jail. They're just taking this money. And the way they sank, what, 40 plus million 
million into a $55 million MedMart project. I mean, they have just frittered away massive amounts of money in the past year, and taxpayers are angry. I think that's part of the reason Nan Baker, the only council person with an opponent, lost. But we do need the money for the jail. And despite, you know, what sounds like some anger on the incoming administration's part, nothing's permanent. There's a deadline for spending this money. If they get close to the deadline yes. and they haven't spent it, right. and Chris Renane goes to the council and says, guys, we're not going to be able to spend this money in time. We're going to lose it. Here's some other things we could spend it on. Don't you think they would do it? Yes, but, the, you know, how close to the deadline are they going to get? Because that's a lot of money to try to find other uses for it in the, you know, 11th hour. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, they, we desperately need money for the jail. And, and really, they've done such a terrible job. And we just had an editorial from editorial board a week ago blasting them for all the ways they have wasted money without having any for the jail. And so their response is, okay, we'll take the $50 million because <laughs> the whole game has changed and we'll put it into this fund. Okay. okay. I mean, yes, it's better than squandering it, but Ronane <laughs> should get to make that decision. That's what they pledged to do. Leave it for the next executive. They they should honor that. They don't they but don't they get did. to they don't they, get to squander their millions and then say, "Now we're going to safeguard this other pot of money. We're going to commit, you know, the next executive's dollars to to this use." When not a single one of them committed any of their own slush funds to the jail project. They can't <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Investing in pet projects in the suburbs that translate into votes and popularity while using the money reserved for Ronane to appear to be investing in this worthwhile thing. If you really, if you really care about it, put your own slush funds toward the jail. I am so glad we added this topic to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the end of a comic strip after 50 years a big deal anymore? It would have been a big deal two decades ago, but how much of a splash did we see from the news that Northeast Ohio's Tom Batuick is ending Funky Winkerbean at the end of the year? Laura. I, I still think it's a big deal. This is a beloved cartoon. But the good news is that he's still doing Crankshaft, shaft, which my parents have always loved. So actually, I, ha I didn't talk to my mom about the ending of Funky Winkerbean. I'll have to ask her how she she is feeling about it. But um, the, the, the author, he lives in Medina, and he's ender, end, sorry, ending this December 31st. But he's been very intentional about winding down the story. So he's dropped hints that Funky's drawing to a close, uh, the sale of the Montani's restaurant in the, in the comic strip and retirement coming. So they're going to revisit a bunch of events and characters that people have come to love so that people will get some closure before this is over at the end of the year. Does anybody read this well, podcast? Lisa, do you read this uh, cartoon? Funky Winkerbean? And yes, yeah. and it was kind of like my Ohio connection when I was, because, you know, oh, the Chronicle wow. carried it. And so it was kind of like my connection to Ohio, because sometimes they would mention Ohio or there would be things about Ohio in the strip. But the one thing I want to point out about Funky Winkerbean, it's one of the very few comics where the characters have aged. You know, well, it yeah. jumped actually. Like they skipped from high school, which they mm -hmm. were in for twenty years, to right. adulthood. They never went to college. I just you remember know. the hall monitor sitting at the end of the hall with the machine gun, which I don't think would fly today <laughs> as imagery you'd want in the schools. And you know, and he look, the big moving thing was when the Lisa character died of cancer. And people right. were in tears over that. I think he put out a book about it. 
Um, I get it. My wife is not happy about this. She made sure to to let me know. I think, well, I can't really control if cartoonists want to retire. Uh, th- Laura, how did the stories do? Did a lot of people seem to be reading them? You know, I don't think they were ever at the top of our charts. But um, Brenda Kane did get an interview with Tom Batuik, who wrote this, and it was it was really nice. So if you want to hear in his own voice how he feels about wrapping it up, I would definitely go read those on Cleveland.com. But you're right. It does feel like an end of an era. And I mentioned it to a friend and she was like, what? So <laughs> but you know what also happened last week without much of a splash was the end of the parade magazine. So, no, 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 no. Well, it's the print, end of right? the print edition the pr- of Parade right, Magazine. Okay. Don't get me Does in trouble any- here. Parade Magazine <laughs> continues in the E-Edition. Let's move on. It's Today in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody listening to this podcast who is flying somewhere this Thanksgiving, will they find parking at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport? Lisa, it sounds like this is going to be a nightmare. And as somebody who once got boxed out of parking and had to drive to New York as a result, how worrisome should this be? You better plan ahead because parking will be very tight at Cleveland Hopkins Airport during this Thanksgiving holiday travel season. They're expecting 260,000 passengers to pass through Hopkins in the next 10 days ending next this Sunday. Uh, They have 250 parking spaces that are out of commission in their 4,420 space garage because of ongoing repairs. That project is going to last another year. Acting airport director Dennis Kramer says we've already hit capacity a couple of times in recent weeks. He says check clevelandairport.com for on-site parking availabilities. Um, Hopkins only has about 6,500 parking spaces, while John Glenn Columbus Airport has 16,000 and Pittsburgh International has 14,000. So we're already way short. But demolition of the Sheraton Hotel will create 400 plus new spaces, but not for a while. But they will be able to use the current parking lot spaces at the hotel already available. So Kramer is saying, Take an Uber, get a friend to drop you off, consider off-site parking like Park and Fly, Fast Park and Park Place and others, because chances are you're not going to find a space at Hopkins. This all gets back to when they demolished an entire garage a few years back that nobody could understand why they were doing that. They didn't want to do some repairs to it. But with that garage, they had adequate parking. And since then, they have it. Another reason the airport should be in the hands of a regional authority. Cleveland just does not seem to be able to manage this thing well. How do you not have parking at an airport? It's mind-boggling. It's Today in Ohio. Let's end on a high note. Is Mr. Jingling Cleveland's Christmas... Wait, let me ask this again. <laughs> Is Mr. Jingling Cleveland's Christmas version of Sweetest Day? Where did this character come from? Where did it go when it went away? Why is it back? And Layla, we heard from some people that said he didn't really go away. We're missing some iterations. Yeah. So Mr. Jingling returned to Ohio last Christmas season, and he'll be back again this year. His schedule is packed. He's including, uh, you know, he's going to he'll have appearances at Cleveland Christmas Connection at the IX Center and the downtown tree lighting ceremony on November 26th. Reporter Paris Wolf has the whole schedule of appearances in her story on Cleveland.com. But she also tells us the history of Mr. Jingling. And you're right, this this character is so unique to Northeast Ohio. He made his debut on Christmas Eve in 1956, and he entertained kids both on TV as part of the Captain Penny show and on the seventh floor of the downtown Halley's department store. The backstory of this character is that, I never knew this, I mean, I remember Mr. Jingling, but 
<laughs> he he was a key maker for castles and kingdoms who Santa turned to for help when he lost his keys to the treasure house of toys. That seems really, uh, that, yeah. Well, so the first eight seasons of Mr. Jingling were played by Cleveland Playhouse actor Max Ellis until he died of a heart attack, at which point the managing director of Lakewood Little Theater, Carl Mackey, took over for one season. And then in 1965, Earl Keyes, who was the producer and director of the Captain Penny Show, took over. And uh, he did that for the next 30 years. And then Halley's closed in 1982. Mr. Jingling was evicted and then went to Santa Land on the 10th floor of Higby's department store. And Earl Keyes later obtained the character's copyright for himself and made holiday appearances at Tower City until 1995. And he sadly died in 2000. So I, I guess when Santa loses his keys now, he just does what the rest of us do, just run around the house like and swearing up a storm. <laughs> Why does he right? need keys when he goes down the chimney? You know, the answer to my question is yes. Yes. This is Cleveland's Christmas version of Sweetest Day, something nobody from outside I, Cleveland I has ever I grew up here, and I literally had never heard of him until I worked for The Plain Dealer in 2007. I was like, what is this guy? I mean, <laughs> you'd have to be a child of the 60s to really remember Mr. Jingling like I do. I feel like I've seen this on TV, though, where they're like reruns and stuff, because I'm the same age as Laura, and I have a memory of him. I don't yeah, but know. But Laura was too busy collecting Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> also, the whole, like, my parents are Canadian and not from Cleveland, so they never would have instilled the love of Mr. Jingling. <laughs> that was an inside joke about the Beanie Babies. It's Today in Ohio. That wraps up the Monday podcast. We will be doing one more this week and then a special episode on Wednesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Come on back tomorrow for another discussion of the news. 